Hey, Rachel, is Mask the same person as Madam Mask? What? No, Madam Mask is Count Nefaria's kid. But Mask has been female, right? During that whole arena thing. Female presenting, certainly, although it's never been entirely clear whether that was a matter of identity or disguise. Oh man, that story. I know. Didn't Mask give Callisto tentacles? Indeed, which, fun fact, is actually the second time that's happened. The first time it was Jean Grey. Jean Grey gave Callisto tentacles. No, 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 Mask gave Jean Grey tentacles. Huh, was that a thing in the Ultimate Universe too? I remember it being a thing. I'm pretty sure Ultimate Jean never had tentacles. She was the dictator of a floating island nation for a while, though. No, not Jean, Callisto. Oh, yeah, yeah, Ultimate Callisto totally had tentacles. That's why she wears the eye patch. Because she can't control them and accidentally messed up one of her eyes? Because they shoot out of her eye socket. What?! Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 66th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera and the second of our first ever two-parter. Yes, indeed. And episode 66, if we turned ourselves on our heads and we're looking at it upside down, then we'd almost be at our 100th anniversary episode. You're trying too hard. I'm just saying, we're, we're close, if we're upside down. No. Well, anyway... So yes, this is part two of the Mutant Massacre. To recap, the Mutant Massacre was the first big X-Men event, the first big X-Men crossover. And even though it involves all the X-Books at the time, not all the characters meet up like at all. Right, you've basically got two parallel storylines. One of them is playing out in X-Men and New Mutants, and we covered that last episode. And actually, I'm going to take a minute to say really quickly, now normally we try to make sure that every episode of this podcast can stand alone, but right now, if you haven't listened to episode 65, that's the Mutant Massacre Part 1, I'd recommend pausing this and going back and doing that, because we're going to be building directly on the material that we've covered there. At the same time, if you want to get the experience that a lot of comics fans had at the time where they would only be reading certain titles and have no idea what was going on, then hey, just listen to this one. Alternately, listen to one in each channel at uh, the same time. Yes, or you can listen to one episode and your friend can listen to another and you can tell each other about it. Again, replicating common comic book experiences at the time. Nah, seriously, we've actually got a reading order posted on our site. We linked to it in the As Mentioned episode 65 and we'll link to it from here again. But we've basically got two parallel storylines going on. One is playing out in Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, and we covered that last episode. The second one, which we're going to be looking at now, is playing out over X-Factor and Thor and Power Pack with a very, very brief tie-in from Daredevil. We're not going to be covering that last one because, again, it's, it's really just a brief tie-in. Right. So I guess we should talk a little bit about what's been happening in the books thus far and the creative teams who are on them. Well, let's see. X-Factor is now being written by Louise Simons, and there's going to be a switch in artists midway through this arc, so we're going to hold off on covering that for now. We're looking at X-Factor. X-Factor is the original five X-Men reunited after Jean Grey's return from the not-exactly-dead. And they are doing this under the guise of a group of mutant hunters. Again, X-Factor being run unofficially by Warren Worthington Angel's high school best friend Cameron Hodge. Now, at the same time, they've also got another set of double identities. Those are the Exterminators. These are a group of renegade mutants that allow the X-Factor members, again, the original five X-Men, to run around and use their mutant powers. Sometimes they fight each other. It's always really confusing. Yeah, basically, X-Factor investigations advertise themselves as mutant hunters. They get called in when there's a mutant causing trouble. And then in reality, the characters go in as the Exterminators to ideally rescue said mutants, train them in their powers, that sort of thing. And then whatever anti-mutant group called them gets stuck with the bill. Now, two of the first mutants whom they rescued are Rusty Collins and Artie Maddox. Rusty is a pyrokinetic. He was a sailor in the Navy who accidentally burned a bunch of people when his powers manifested. And he's been living with X-Factor ever since, trying to get control of his powers. Artie Maddox, or the way I think of him, 
the pink kid, was the son of a mad scientist, long story there, who is mute and illiterate, but communicates by basically pulling psychic projections out of what's going on in other people's heads or in reality elsewhere and displaying those as kind of holographic pictures. Yeah, he's pretty much wholly nonverbal. I get the impression he understands spoken language and speech, but he can't relay anything verbal outward, so he projects psychic images. Yes, handy power, considering. They've both been hanging out at X-Factor HQ. They know what's up with the double, triple, quadruple, however many identities. Now, speaking of double identities, the most recent group to come after X-Factor, and specifically after Rusty, is Freedom Force. Yes. So Freedom Force is Mystique and a number of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants under her tenure as their leader. Mystique basically saw which way the wind was blowing, which is to say being a mutant is terrible in the climate of 1986. And so she approached the government and said, we would like to work for you. Just don't, you know, lock us up or kill us or whatever. And the government sent them after Rusty Collins, who at this point is officially a fugitive from justice. Freedom Force tracked them down, and they specifically tracked Rusty down after he'd gotten in an argument with Cyclops. X-Factor had gone out. Rusty had gone out to warn them that Freedom Force was coming, I think. Yes. It's one of those weird paradoxes where the thing wouldn't have happened if someone didn't know the thing was going to happen. We covered that last episode. It's pretty great. Yeah, last X-Factor episode, so episode 63. Uh, Yes, that one. Right. And they all get into a massive fight in Central Park, as distinct from the fight that the X-Men have gotten into in Central Park with Nimrod and the Hellfire Club. That's a whole other thing. Although, again, it's happening simultaneously. We talked about this last episode, and in fact, we've talked about this a lot, but X-Factor and X-Men at this point are basically engaging in a series of increasingly ridiculous and less likely near misses. Yeah, it's kind of silly. And it certainly continues in this story, which is not silly and is instead bloody and dark and depressing. Yay! Now, before we dive in, let's talk a little bit about the Mutant Massacre, about its history, and about some things that changed later. Last episode, you mentioned Gambit specifically and how he was retconned into this story. Right, so we'll see a number of retcons about this story, some of which make more sense than others. Gambit, everyone's favorite card-tossing member of the Teeves Guild, an aficionado of facial buttresses, apparently the first big thing he did in the X-Universe, after getting divorced from his Assassin's Guild wife, oh, it's a long story. Um, Oh my god, I want to briefly, briefly say, the way this is handled in X-Men 92 is so great. Oh, it's pretty great, yeah. The best breakup note of all time. Uh Uh-huh. Gambit at the time was apparently working for Mr. Sinister, who, as we know from reading the X-Men stuff, was the one that organized the Marauders. Oh, this is great. This is not actually relevant, but it's one of those weird little details I love. He was specifically working with Mr. Sinister because Gambit had been having trouble controlling his powers, and Mr. Sinister fixed it by removing a bit of Gambit's brain, which he then kept basically as leverage over Gambit. Nathaniel Essex, you are an amazing human being, or whatever it is you are at this point. A system? A system. I mean, we have an official term for this. We have word of God. Oh, that's true, or at least word of Kieran Gillen. Yeah, word of narrative captions. Mm -hmm. But yes, so Gambit was working for Mr. Sinister. He assembled the Marauders. Now, he didn't know why he was assembling the Marauders. Mr. Sinister just told him to get together a bunch of killer mutants. Yeah, to be fair, it's like, what did he think they were going to do, though? Like, you know, Sinister was like, get me the most bloodthirsty killers, the ones who just really won't care about, you know, wiping out children or like old people or anyone helpless. Make sure they really have no scruples and just, you know, bring them back here. And Gambit's like, okay, we're going to have the best game of Pinochle Ever! Uh, I was going to say, I I thought it was just Mr. Sinister trying to form a a kickball team to go up against Apocalypse. Ooh, if you look at their powers, and if you look especially at ones like, you know, Prism and Vertigo and Arclight, and the way they're dressed and stuff, it might be Mr. Sinister's first failed attempt to form a glam band. So my theory about Sinister is that his secret goal, what he doesn't realize about himself, is that he's not actually trying to achieve immortality through genetics, he's trying to achieve immortality through glam rock stardom. 
And I have evidence to support this. It, it goes way back. But anyway, um, you can see this gradually progress and it hits its apex, of course, in the Age of Apocalypse, the reality over which he has the most control, which is inarguably the most ridiculously glam of alternate universes. But we digress. So anyway, point being, Gambit, yes, so he got the Marauders together, he took them to the Morlock Tunnels. Once he realized what was going on, he skedaddled out of there, rescuing the little girl who would later become Marrow. Right. Now, here's the thing, though. Last episode, we talked about this in, in Uncanny X-Men 210. We see how the Marauders get to the tunnels. They follow a woman named Tommy there from L.A. Yeah, so indeed that does not make any sense. Now, some fans had come up with a no-prize explanation for that, which is that the Marauders that go with Gambit and the Marauders that follow Tommy are different Marauders. So apparently they were each trying to find their own way to the Morlock Tunnels and both succeeded. Did they not have, like, comms or something? Can they not be like, hey guys, we found the tunnels, come over here? No, this was even before those giant, like, brick-sized cell phones you see in the X-Files. This does kind of explain some of the X-Men X-Factor communication breakdown too. If only they had brick-sized cell phones. I mean, they've got telepaths, though. Eh, telepaths, whatever. They can't do anything. Anyway, Mutant Massacre. So, yes, that's retcon number one. Now, retcon number two was basically the contents of the cold open last episode. That's the whole thing with Dark Beast having created the Morlocks, so we won't go into that again. Retcon number three, well, I guess it's not really a retcon so much as a further explanation, is that Mr. Sinister keeps cloning the Marauders over and over and over. So, like, some of the Marauders die in the Mutant Massacre, and they just come back, and apparently that's because Mr. Sinister has an unlimited supply of Marauders just sort of on tap. Yeah, otherwise they'll never get the guitar skills he needs. Exactly. You know, when you see a Marauder die here, don't feel too bad. Partially because they'll be back, and partially because they're all homicidal maniacs who probably the world would be much better off without. Really glam homicidal maniacs, though. I guess if you're going to be something, you might as well be a glam that something. So, anyway, with that, we come to X-Factor number nine, Spots. We have one last art team. This is Terry Shoemaker, I think, as a guest penciler, before we're going to settle into the team that is going to define this title for a long time. At this point, X-Factor is still standing off against Freedom Force, who are still after Rusty, who has been rescued by Skids, who is one of the Morlocks. This sentence is kind of spiraling out of control, isn't it? Well, what's also kind of out of control is the fact that Mystique is Uncle Sam right now. She shapeshifted into Uncle Sam when she confronted Rusty, and I don't know why. You know what else is out of control? Skids' outfit, which is the best. Yeah, uh, again, go a couple episodes back if you want to hear us rhapsodize about the glorious fashionista that is Sally Blevins. Anyway, Skids gets Rusty safely to the Morlock Tunnels. Meanwhile, X-Factor is waylaid by Trish Tilby, intrepid reporter. And we've seen Trish before. I mean, she's basically covered all of the big conflicts X-Factor has had. She's very skeptical of them as an organization. Justifiably? Yeah, understandably so. And as they're talking, X-Factor sees someone else they know as well. That is Magneto, and he is on his way into the Hellfire Club. Now, this is really cool because we saw the exact same scene in X-Men number 210 from Magneto's perspective. I really love it when they overlap like this. Right. Um, Magneto is actually going into the Hellfire Club for exactly the reasons he appears to be, which is that he's trying to make an alliance with them, but he's doing it for the right reasons. He recognizes some of the original X-Men and that they're with X-Factor. They recognize him. No one talks to anyone else because they're all convinced they're all secretly evil. Yeah. Speaking of convinced, I love Cyclops' line here. I'm just glad that Professor Xavier isn't here to witness this betrayal. Man, Cyclops, you're such a dick. Yeah, he really is. You know, he'll, he'll get better. He'll get better. Right now, he's got some rough stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. X-Factor Cyclops has hella issues. Meanwhile, unfortunately, Rusty and Skids have been caught by Freedom Force. But dubiously, fortunately for them, there's a mob of extremely angry humans all around who see Freedom Force go, Oh my god, it's mutants attacking two normal-looking kids. 
and start throwing rocks. And I actually love this scene because it's X-Factor, X-Factor the comic that is, directly addressing the idea of passing privilege. I mean, we have, you know, the people who are being hunted, they're being hunted specifically because they're renegade mutants. That's not what this crowd sees. They just see a couple of good-looking, white, young adults who are being hounded by strange-looking people in funny outfits. X-Factor shows up in time to stop the mob, but again, they're accosted by Trish Tilby, who is calling them out justifiably on what is essentially a vigilante anti-mutant terror campaign. Yeah, and I mean, you know, she's not wrong. She's not, and she demolishes, you know, Beast's extremely, extremely bullshit argument really elegantly in ways that I kind of love. I kind of want to actually just go through this bit because it's it's kind of timeless dialogue because it's something I see played out over and over and over and over and over again. Literally anytime someone calls out like wrongdoing or sexism or racism or whatever, the, well, if it's so bad, then you're the one talking about it. So tell me something. How can X-Factor sponsor a mutant smear campaign then champion them? What does X-Factor really stand for? And Beast says, Not for vigilantism, despite our advertising. Certainly not for murder. You've been covering X-Factor regularly, so you tell me. Wasn't this hysteria really a result of media hype? The kind of reporting that you're so good at? If simply reporting your exploits is so bad, then how much worse are the mutant hunters? How can you even pretend you're against vigilantism and violence? Go Trish Tilby. Meanwhile, back at headquarters, Artie, who is a telepath, sees a vision of what's waiting in the tunnels, and he tries to do the responsible thing and find an adult. Unfortunately for Artie, the only adult home is Cameron Hodge, who is the absolute goddamn worst. Yeah, I love what he says to Artie here. Go have your nasty little fit somewhere else. And then presumably parenthetically, and also I'm working on becoming a severed head with a big robot alien body with little broken glasses and I'm going to murder a bunch of characters. Cameron Hodge, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, most of the rest of that stuff won't happen until way later, but it's totally coming. Artie, being the intrepid and delightful little scamp he is, finds a way to communicate with X-Factor. He projects one of his images onto the wall, traces it, and then dresses up in his disguise, which is a trench coat about four sizes too big and a hat, and goes down to the tunnels to try to do some good, to try to save someone. X-Factor figures out what's going on, that there's something going on in the Morlock tunnels, that Rusty and Skids are involved and that Artie's gone after them. They immediately realize they can't go down there as X-Factor because, you know, X-Factor are mutant hunters. The Morlocks are going to tear them apart with good reason. So they switch to their X-Terminator get-ups. At the time, though, Artie is trying to find Rusty. He's trying to make sure everything is okay. And he runs into who I affectionately think of as the green kid. So now we have the pink kid and the green kid, and I bet they taste very minty together. Wow, that took a really upsetting turn no, really I'm just fast, saying, like Miles. those after-dinner mint things, like there's the green kind and the pink kind, no, they're the no, exact right shades. No, no, dude, dude, no, these are not after-dinner mints. These are the delightful eternal moppets of the Marvel Universe. The friendship forged in these few panels of nose boops will last, you know, decades and decades and decades, and the kids involved will never age. It's true. It's one of those weird things. It's really weird. We get questions pretty regularly about how time works in the Marvel Universe, and the answer is basically arbitrarily. Mm -hmm. And these guys are some of the central evidence because, yeah, they're still basically six. But I really do love them together because, Rachel, like you said, Artie and Leech are going to be friends until, like, the end of time in the Marvel Universe. And they're just so great together. They're both these innocent little children, and their personalities are very distinct. Their powers are very distinct. I remember you were telling me you wanted to see, like, them in an adventure video game or something. Right, yes, yes, because they're basically each other palette swapped. I want to see them as the main characters in, like, a point-and-click adventure game where they have to solve mysteries because they've got really cool complementary powers, too. So Artie can do the telepathic thing and project images, and Leech cancels out other mutants' powers. And so you could you could create such cool puzzles around those. You totally could. 
I really want this. I think it would be so fun. But for now, uh, Leech brings Artie to another one of the Morlocks that we've seen, uh, that being Caliban. He was actually the first Morlock we ever met way back in Uncanny X-Men number not very many. Right, when he kidnapped a teenager and tried to marry her. Ah, you know, like you do. Awkward. So at this point, we have these three characters together as they're going to be for a fair bit of the rest of the crossover. In the meantime, the members of X-Factor are heading down, trying to figure out just what's going on, where Rusty is, where Artie is. And so are the members of Freedom Force. Destiny has warned them against coming into the Morlock tunnels. She claims she sees only death. But they are intent on getting their man, so they follow Rusty and Skids down too, and they end up clashing with the Exterminators, whom they recognize while they didn't recognize X-Factor. Yeah, and you know, long story short, there's a big fight, and eventually Freedom Force says, you know what, this is not worth it, let's get out of here. Destiny realizes they're all going to die if they stay there. They run off. X-Factor, however, hears a scream. And we get nearly the closing caption of the issue. And nearby, in the tunnels, mutants start to die. That line is just so stark and harsh. That really stuck with me, and it struck me going back and reading this again, that reading this issue, reading all of the just, you know, X-Factor and Freedom Force banging against each other pointlessly, that's the majority of this issue feels like watching season one of Game of Thrones if you've read the books. Oh, right. It's that kind of horrible anticipation because you know what's going on while they're doing this pointless shit. You know that you know, there is a slaughter going on like two miles away that they could be stopping, but they're not because they're just, you know, they're here doing this. Yeah. And so as X-Factor heads deeper into the tunnels, Freedom Force is being dressed down by Val Cooper, who's their government contact, and Mystique, the leader of Freedom Force, decides, you know what? Okay, so this direct confrontation thing isn't working, but we know that X-Factor and the X-Terminators are the same people. We know that one of them is the very public mutant, Warren Worthington. How about we leak this information to the press, maybe that Trish Tilby lady, and see what happens? Which means that X-Factor will be besieged on all sides as we go into number 10. Number 10 also introduces a new player to the game, and one that I want to stop and talk about for a minute, and that is our new regular series artist, the one and only Walter Simonson. Yeah, so Walter Simonson, uh, like we mentioned, Walter Simonson is the husband of the writer of the book, Louise Simonson. He's also been doing his own work at Marvel, most memorably The Mighty Thor, which is possibly my favorite run of anything by anyone ever. Yeah, we've talked about him before, and we've talked about the Thor run here, but I think with both of us, if we absolutely had to stop and nail down a favorite comics artist, this is probably where we would end up landing. Yeah, Simonson's got this great style that's very clearly inspired by Jack Kirby but is also very distinctive. So it's got this sort of detailed science fiction-y feel to it, even when he's drawing stuff that's not particularly in that genre. But also a very dynamic, elegant, almost pre-Raphaelite fluidity. Yeah, I mean, he's not as distinctive as, say, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz or somebody like that, but in terms of having a style that's kind of standard and realistic, but giving it very much its own distinctive and beautiful flair, Simonson is all about that. I don't know. I think he's actually an artist who's almost immediately recognizable. I mean, he's someone I can always pick out within a panel or two. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Me too. What we see, what we get with an opening here is the Marauders and, and the beginning of the actual massacre. And the Morlocks as drawn by Simonson, man, these guys are really awfully Renfair, aren't they? Like sort of fourth world Renfair. Oh, man, I, I want to go to a fourth world Renfair. That sounds awesome. There'd be little circles all over everything. Okay, I can live with that. And um, yeah, the Marauders just start murdering everyone, like really graphically. I mean, we're not seeing blood and gore, but we are seeing just Morlocks die left and right. As this is going on, X-Factor meets up with Rusty and Skids. Rusty is severely injured at this point, and Gene and Warren head out to evacuate him, while Scott, Hank, and Bobby remain to try to figure out what's going on in the tunnels and to try to find Artie, who's still missing. 
Yeah, and Cyclops is feeling super guilty about this whole thing because if it weren't for him yelling at Rusty because he was so messed up over his conflicts with Gene, then none of this would have happened. So he's like, you know what? No matter what happens, we are finding this kid. He is not getting hurt on my watch because of my stupid mistake. Yeah, this is kind of the everyone owns their shit really hard arc. And Simonson really started this at the beginning of her run, but it's coming into play much, much harder here. And... It's a good storyline for it to happen in, too, because honestly, if there was ever a time for X-Factor to grow up and put their soap opera bullshit aside and deal with what needs to be dealt with, it's now. Exactly. And so they head further in. In the meantime, Caliban, Artie, and Leech are trying to get to safety. They're trying to find X-Factor or Rusty or someone and get the hell out of there. And that's when we see Victor Creed, Sabretooth, who damn near kills Caliban. Mystique's campaign against Warren Worthington is working. It's all over the news. Candy Southern, Warren's girlfriend, who's currently running Worthington Enterprises, is dragged out of a meeting to go deal with it, and she decides she's going to fly to New York, which she does just in time to see Jean and Warren embracing in a fit of mutual angst and leave Warren in a huff, because this is such an action-y storyline. But then the part that follows Jean and Warren, like back at headquarters, is the most high, like, apartment 3G soap opera ever. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair, any of the X-Books are going to have that apartment 3 genus to them. I think we need to call it that from now on. <laughs> uh, but it does feel really weird juxtaposed with all of the, you know, murder going down in the tunnels below. Right, the dialogue changes, even the quality of the art kind of changes. And then Candy storms out, and Jean tries to convince Warren to go after her. But Warren decides that, no, this whole mess is his fault. X-Factor was his admittedly absolutely terrible idea. He is going to get back into the tunnels, damn it. He's going to make sure that Scott comes home safely. You know, this whole thing is like Scott and Warren each deciding, you know, it's okay. Gene really loves the other guy. I'm going to make sure he gets home safe. And then everybody just gets totally messed up over it. Yeah, and everything just ends absolutely, absolutely terribly. So they head down to the tunnels where the rest of X-Factor is doing their best to save Morlocks from the Marauders, but they're getting more and more beaten up. And the Marauders are on the hunt and they they find they find Plague. Plague is one of the Morlocks we've seen before. She can make anyone sick with a touch, but before they can take her out, someone else shows up to intervene. Right, and that is somebody who I don't think anybody was expecting at this point, that being the one and only En Sabah Nur, Apocalypse. And Apocalypse is here to recruit Plague as his first horseman, Pestilence. Yeah, I feel like if you know Apocalypse, you know about his four horsemen, just like in the kind of biblical stuff, Pestilence, Famine, Death, and War. And so this Apocalypse, who is still kind of theme-light, shall we say, mm. is now assembling exactly that. He's finding people who are going to fit each of those roles for reasons we don't yet know about, but we'll definitely find out more about in X-Factor. Now, the motif this generally takes in pretty much every incarnation of Apocalypse in the X-Men is that he recruits three of them from wherever, and then death is whichever one of the X-Men has disappeared most recently, or someone whose identity is going to need to be a big twist reveal. Death is sort of the big deal horseman. Yeah, but uh, that's, of course, the last one that will be recruited. Right now, we have Pestilence and Plague figures. Okay, well, wherever you want to take me, weird big blue guy, it can't be much worse than here, so okay. And here is pretty bad. The Marauders have just been waiting for X-Factor to hunt them down so that they, in turn, can take out X-Factor. Angel and Marvel Girl arrive just in time to rescue the rest of the team, and Marvel Girl actually kills Prism, one of the Marauders. This is the second one we've seen taken out by a superhero. Yeah, I mean, Prism is sort of frying Cyclops with his abilities, and Marvel Girl smashes him against a wall, and he is, like, for real, straight up dead. Of course, with the whole thing we mentioned before about Sinister cloning the Marauders, 
he'll be back. But for right now, not knowing that bigger plot point, this is kind of a big deal. X-Factor's in really bad shape at this point. As we mentioned last episode, you don't really win a fight with the Marauders, you survive it. So right now, Iceman's been effectively blinded, Beast is bleeding out, Cyclops is unconscious, and Angel says that he's going to find Artie since Jean is the one of them who can carry three people. She needs to get the rest of the team to safety. And we keep seeing this, like X-Factor going down into the tunnels and going down just for long enough to rescue people and bring them back to headquarters and then going down again and sometimes being the people who need rescuing themselves. Yeah, X-Factor are just going to keep going back and going back and going back until they can't. And speaking of can't, Angel does find Artie, and with him, unfortunately, the Marauders. He sends Artie off, and that he'll hold the Marauders off. Unfortunately for Angel, he is in tunnels, which means that he can't use his one primary ability, which is swooping around and dodging things ineffectively. That is unfortunate indeed, because this is kind of where everything goes to hell for Warren Worthington in a way that he will never, ever recover from. Yeah, this is the fall of Angel. And, you know, we talked last episode about graphic violence and how you almost never see blood in this storyline. You, you see descriptions of it, but you rarely actually see it. And there's a panel in this issue near the end of it of, I think, Blockbuster just tearing one of Angel's wings. It's not gory, but it's one of the most graphic and one of the most disconcerting moments of violence, I think, in this storyline. Yeah, you really get an impression from the art of just how fragile and delicate and beautiful Angel's wings are. And they're just being mangled and crushed and destroyed agonizingly as the Marauders beat him almost to death in the most painful way possible. Yeah, and the Marauders take Angel down and they nail him to the sewer wall by his wings. Right, which is definitely a vivid, vivid image right there. A little bit. Now we're going to come back to what happens with Angel, but first let's talk about something much more lighthearted, one would think. That being the Power Pack tie-in. Oh man, these poor kids. They just, they keep crossing over with the X-Men and it never goes well. Yeah, now this is Power Pack number 27. So brief bit of context, the Power Pack just got back from Snark World. The Snarks are these aliens that are a big deal in Power Pack. They have all recently changed powers for complicated reasons, and they also have a fifth member, as opposed to just the four siblings who started the team, that being the young son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, Franklin Richards, currently codenamed Tattletail. Franklin is a powerful mutant, but I believe at this point his powers are limited to a sort of dream projection. Dream projection, telling the future, limited telepathy, that sort of thing. He is, in fact, a nigh-omnipotent reality warper, but his powers, I think, have been artificially tamped down because being five and being able to control the nature of the universe is not a great combination, as you'll know if you've ever interacted with a five-year-old. Yes, or the Beyonder, for that matter, who might as well have been. Yeah, him too. So they're all hanging out with their family, and I'm going to gloss over some of the less mutant massacre relevant stuff here. And it's worth noting, this book is also written by Louise Simonson. You see sort of a core set of creators through the crossovers. Um, Claremont's on Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, obviously. Louise Simonson and Walter Simonson collectively on all of the other books on X-Factor, Powerback, and later Thor, which we'll be getting to shortly. And so they're all going to bed, and Franklin Richards has this kind of dream that he projects telepathically while he sleeps that wakes up the other kids, or at least the other boys that are in the room with him, of Leech, who is a Morlock that the Power Pack has met before, cradling an injured friend in the tunnels, and bad stuff going on all around them. Right, Power Pack knows the Morlocks. They're friends with them. They were there for one of the X-Men adventures with them, and I think Anna Lee, who is one of the elderly Morlocks, eventually ended up adopting them as her unofficial grandchildren. Yeah, that didn't go so well at first, but it worked out. Well, no, first she kidnapped them and tried to brainwash all of them, and then they decided that she could still be their honorary grandma. So the Power Pack quickly realizes, hey, Leech and this other guy seem to be in trouble. Something bad is happening down there. 
We've heard of this organization X-Factor that hunts mutants. Maybe it's them. Maybe they're the ones causing this. Let's go save the people we care about. No one likes X-Factor. No, no, especially not the writers at the time. And so they just sort of get into their costumes and head out in the middle of the night without their parents knowing, as they tend to do. Yeah, that's sort of your job when you're power pack. And they head down to the tunnels and immediately get into a fight with Sabretooth. So here's the thing with this. The power pack stuff is really dark. I mean, there there are a lot of corpses and a lot of really sad conversations. But at the same time, this issue for me kind of defangs the Marauders because we've got a group of kids taking out or effectively fending off the same villains who've been taking down teams of superpowered adults. Yeah, I was never a huge fan of that. I mean, I like this issue and I like the power pack in general. But when you see Sabretooth, who's really the scariest of the Marauders at the moment, with the possible exception of Scalp Hunter, just getting fought off and buried under rubble by a group of small children, you know, it, it kind of unsells the terror of the premise. Yeah, so they pulled off Sabretooth, and then they run into Wolverine, who they know and are buds with. He makes them promise to leave so that he can concentrate on rescuing people in trouble. They promise to, and they of course don't. So they continue on and come upon Annalee. And so we mentioned in the previous episode that Annalee was shot by Scalp Hunter, and they see her here in a pool of blood. Now, we've been talking about how little sort of gore and blood there is in this crossover, and what's really weird to me is that there is far more in this issue of the kids' comic Power Pack than in any of the ostensible adult comics. That's just weird. Right? This is super graphic. And it's really, really sad in the text, too, because this is, I mean, she's also Leech's adopted mom. And we get the scene of Franklin Richards trying to explain that the fact that she died doesn't mean she doesn't love him. Oh, yeah, this line. Listen, Leech, mommies and daddies, they go away sometimes, but that doesn't mean they don't love you. As Leech is, like, sobbing. Oh, God. Yeah, so X-Factor comes across this deeply goddamn depressing scene and is immediately struck, or at least Cyclops is immediately struck with the fact that, oh yeah, he's got a kid he totally forgot about and basically abandoned, and he should probably, you know, stand up and deal with that, but first he's got to make sure that these particular kids get home safely. Yeah, so as has been happening a lot so far, X-Factor takes Leech and they promise to take him to safety. Right, so they've got Leech and they send the power pack home. Beast and Iceman go to take Leech back to HQ. Since he knocks out powers, it makes more sense for two of them to go together, leaving Scott and Jean to keep on hunting for Artie and Angel. Right. And I actually really love this scene because, you know, it's not X-Factor, but we do get some great Scott and Jean development with Scott basically saying, okay, so Jean, the man you fell in love with all those years ago, the man you respected, the man who led this team, he's kind of dead. I've betrayed everything that matters to me, and so now is kind of the time to turn that around, and that's why I have to save our friends. I have to save Angel, and I have to save this poor, innocent kid. The man you loved is dead. Editorial mandate killed him. Yeah, pretty much. And so that's kind of the end of the issue. It all works out for the power pack. They've gone down. They've rescued Leech. They feel good about that. They can just have nightmares for the rest of their lives. You know, no big. These are some resilient children, given the stuff they've already seen in, you know, the other X-Men crossovers. God, again, I haven't read a lot of power pack. Is it this dark normally? Not quite this dark, no. So that's Leech accounted for, but what about what's going on with Angel? And okay, guys, so I'm going to try to keep this brief because I could go on for seriously an entire episode length about this, but now we cross over with Walter Simonson's Thor. So Miles, do you have something you'd like to share with us about this book? I have so many things I want to share with the world. Okay, so very brief context. Thor is just coming back from a lot of really big stuff. There was this big war with Surtur that we referred to in Guitar Solos of the Gods, the episode about the Asgardian Wars. We have him having just been turned into a frog. 
We have him having gone to hell to retrieve a bunch of lost souls. That's all done. He's actually getting a breather for a moment. Also, he now has a totally rockin' beard. Yes, he does, uh, specifically to cover up some horrible scars that he got in a fight with Hela, the goddess of death. But the important part is, rock and beard, I wish he'd kept it. And so, I'm not going to go over much of what happens in this first issue, because it only ties in a little bit. But suffice to say, he comes back to Earth, he tries to get in touch with his father, who the last he saw fell into this giant gaping crevasse while fighting Surtur, the god of fire who will end the world in Ragnarok. Crack-a-doom! And he can't contact him, so he's just feeling kind of mopey, like, oh, what, what what do I do? And ends up going to meet up with his old boss that he was working for when he was in his sort of mortal current secret identity, that of Sigurd Jarlson. Right, Sigurd Jarlson is his second secret identity, I believe. The first is Donald Blake, and Donald Blake is a doctor, and he's who Thor genuinely believed himself to be when he was first exiled to Earth. Sigurd Jarlson is more of a convenient civilian identity that he has constructed. He's a construction worker. He's a big guy. He doesn't really have a personal life. And so his boss offers to uh, invite him over for dinner. He sort of insists on it. And there's this great scene of, you know, Thor bonding with all the children and you know, playing with the youngest by throwing him really high in the air. And it's all very charming. It really kind of seems like his boss is maybe inviting him home for a threesome, which is a little bit awkward. It kind of does seem that way, because when his wife first sees that there's a guest, she's like, oh, you know, the place is a mess. I haven't had a chance to get everything together. And the boss is like, he's not married. She's like, you pig. Right. Like, what? I mean, I assume the implication is that maybe Thor could, like, hook up with one of their daughters and, and they but could get married. No, they're all, like, 13. So, no, they're young teenagers. You know, if you have the opportunity to bring Thor home for a threesome, maybe you just should. Maybe anyone just should. That seems reasonable. Yeah. I mean, he'd probably be, like, really good-natured about it, right? I suspect he would. But anyway, so Thor takes the kids the next day to the zoo to give their parents some time off, and he's telling them stories about, you know, Asgardian stuff, when a couple of frogs come up and try to get his attention. Because Thor has frog bros. Of course he does! There was a recent storyline, the thing I mentioned about him becoming a frog, he ended up teaming up with a bunch of other frogs in Central Park, and fighting a bunch of rats and leading them in frog battle, and it was awesome and ridiculous, and Thor is the best thing ever. But what the frogs tell him is, hey, there is some serious shit going down in the tunnels, you should probably check this out, a lot of our alligator buds have been killed, things are very bad fix it. Wait, the frogs have alligator friends? Oh yeah, they totally do. Specifically alligator friends led by the Morlock Piper. That was part of that storyline as well. This is amazing. And something you should understand too is that this is all played perfectly straight-faced in Thor. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, like when he's trying to make up the excuse for why he has to leave because of something frogs told him, he tells the kids, I'm, I'm a sort of undercover policeman. And they're like, no, are you kidding? You're an enormous blonde dude. You're Thor. He's like, oh, uh, I guess so. Well, okay, let me teleport you home since now you know I'm Thor. I want to talk actually a little bit about Thor as a comic and what it's coming in, because this is totally, I think, Power Pack is much more in the vein of what we've been used to. Thor is something very different. I don't know if I would call Thor a superhero comic. Thor is, is a heroic epic. It really, really is. It's a heroic epic that intersects with the superhero world. Yeah. And I mean, you can see that in all of the language, which I really love. It seems kind of cheesy, but if you let yourself get into it, it's just great. He finds Angel pinned up to the wall and he's like, oh, this isn't good and fights off the Marauders, realizes that they're about to come back to try to go for a round two to finish him and Angel off, and thinks to himself, Hark, the sound of footsteps approaching behind me. Methinks that the Marauders have gotten over their first fright and have returned to finish the job. Doubtless they will seek to slay Thor as well, but they will learn that evil walks in the same shadows as the good. Come, bold assassins! You shall find the son of Odin waiting for you in the dark. Yes? Yeah, Thor just talks like that all the time, basically. He does, and he sells it! 
He completely sells it. In some ways, Simonson's writing reminds me of Vincent Price's performance. So the thing with Price, he was a really great actor, but his true genius was his ability to make literally anything sound plausible. Like, have you ever seen The Tingler? I have not. So the premise of The Tingler is that fear is actually this organism that lives in your spine. Okay. And if you don't scream in time, it will grow and kill you. And that's why people scream when they're scared. This is really like deeply, profoundly stupid, yeah? I mean, I was going to say it sounds plausible, but yes, profoundly stupid. Right. So Vincent Price plays, you know, the savvy scientist who is trying to figure out what's going on. And he sells it. I mean, briefly, once you stop and think about it, obviously it doesn't hold off. And it's a terrible movie. It's a William Castle movie, as, as distinct from Frank Castle. <laughs> Sorry, I just love the idea of a universe where they're the same person. <laughs> No, but it's it, he sells it. And see, that's kind of how I feel about Walter Simonson's writing and art and the Thor dialogue. Like, if you just look at it out of context, it looks silly. But there in, you know, it's so in keeping with this tone. It's so immersive and it's it's so all encompassing. Like the word epic gets thrown around so much. And Simonson's Thor is in Absolutely. every sense. I mean, there should be scald singing of this. I mean, if I were a scald, I totally would be. I'm going to be a scald. I think I'm going to be a scald. I think you have to go to scald school for that. Oh, scald school. Slightly like Kalan College. Maybe. Oh. I assume it's about as hard to get into and that you also have to know a number of languages that you'd still need to learn. Yeah, probably true. I'll work on it. But anyway, so Thor number 374, which is the one that comes next, is really the big mutant massacre tie-in now that Thor has actually gotten into the sewers and has found Angel and the Marauders have found him. And the Marauders do in fact attack again. Thor fights them off and handily wins because, hey, Thor... Yeah, we mentioned that you don't really so much win fights with Marauders as survive them. Thor is obviously an exception to this because there are superheroes, but Thor is in fact a god, and he is just that effective. And at that point, he realizes that Angel is in fact still alive, and Angel mutters something about, you know, wondering whether Artie is safe, and then just passes out, saying Thor might as well let him die. I love the way he describes this. The doctor I once was demands that I succor his needs, but the Viking warrior is not so sure. He has given his all in battle, and Valhalla would be his reward in my world. Should I deny him his dying wish in this one? Spoiler. Nope. And so, in fact, they continue on. Thor picks up Angel and is like, no, I, I can't let this guy just die. And very quickly runs into Artie, who sees his friend, who sees Warren, and is terrified that he's dead. He flashes up this psionic image of a graveyard, and Thor says, no, he's alive. I think he's going to be okay. And I love this part right here, because Thor doesn't say, oh, what's going on? This kid is pink and communicating in holograms. He says, here's a child who seems scared for his friend. I'm going to reassure him, and I'm going to just bring him along because, you know, he seems okay. He seems like a good kid. Thor basically sees everybody as either a warrior or a potential warrior. He sees their best within them. And that's, I think, one of the things I like most about the character. You often think of Thor as this kind of big, jovial braggart, but there's also the sense of nobility within him. And that's on display very much right here as he carries this guy with wings who he doesn't ever remember meeting and leads this small, strange child out of the sewers amid horrible danger. Yeah, I feel like you just nailed 100% why Thor is your guy. I think I kind of did, yeah. Him and Longshot, I'm telling you. And so they continue onward, and the Marauders go for a round three. Blockbuster specifically smashes through a wall, presumably busting some blocks in the meantime, and lands on Thor, shattering his arm, which is weird because Thor should be damn near indestructible. So Thor cries out in agony, and he's like, wait, what's going on? He can't even reach his hammer. Angel wakes up briefly, tackles Blockbuster to give Thor an opening, and then Thor picks up Mjolnir and smashes Blockbuster's head in, killing him. At which point, Thor vows even harder to make sure Angel lives and follows Artie, who has now figured out which direction Scott and Jean are, and he's leading them to safety. 
and they meet up pretty quickly. Once again, we see Scott and Jean interacting with the crossover books, and Thor at that point realizes who everyone is. He vaguely remembers the X-Men from that time they fought in, like, the 60s, back when when Lucifer was around. From X-Men number 9 in 1965, when the X-Men and the Avengers erroneously fought and then made friends. Yeah, and so he realizes, oh, okay, this angel I found is actually the X-Man angel. And, of course, turns him and Artie over to Scott and Jean, who return the favor by Scott using his optic blasts to sort of make a splint for Thor's arm. And they tell Thor, you know, you might hear some things about us topside that I really hope you won't believe them. And Thor's like, hey, 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 I learned a long time ago, don't judge a book by its cover, don't judge people based on the rumors you hear about them. I know you're all heroes, don't even worry about it. But in the meantime, there are a lot of dead people here who didn't deserve to die, and somebody needs to take care of that. You should take your wounded, you should get out of these tunnels, because they all need a Viking funeral. First, though, someone else shows up to have a few words with Thor once X-Factor has left. Yeah, Thor's thinking out loud, so many slain, a kingdom of death in miniature, Hela must be enjoying this. And speak her name and she shall appear to tell him that in fact, she is enjoying this, and she is also enjoying seeing what happened to him. She has cursed him. Yeah, after he retrieved those souls from hell that we mentioned earlier in the book Thor. That's specifically the story arc that culminates with the Executioner's Last Stand, right? It totally is. That is the best issue of any comic ever, and if you have not, you should track it down and read it. If you can, you should track down the artist edition of it and look at all of the paste-ups and the lettering grids and everything about it. But yeah, it is a perfect issue. Yeah, Hela has basically cursed Thor. Such that his bones are going to be, I think she describes them as as brittle as those of an old woman, and that he can never die or heal. That basically he's going to get more and more beaten up and learn to fear battle until he's just this sort of mess, this pulp of, like, flesh and bone and blood. Thor will be forced to confront this eventually, and perhaps some other podcast will cover that, but what he does here and now is give the Morlocks a proper Viking send-off and shoots lightning and fire through the tunnels. And I feel like we should make it clear, he's not just like burning a pile of bodies. He is literally incinerating the entirety of the miles-long Morlock tunnels underneath Manhattan. Right, this is the flash of light and heat that we saw mentioned in the X-Men that came up last episode. Yeah. And, you know, as he's doing this, there's an excerpt from Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death that's kind of being captioned all around him as we see, you know, bodies burn and Thor looking grim standing over it all, himself untouched by the lightning and the flames, and it is goddamn operatic and beautiful and terrible and perfect. Which brings us to X-Factor number 11. So, we've got X-Factor back together again. Angel is unconscious and horribly maimed, and Artie tries his best to deliver Angel's message to Scott and Jean, which was to tell them that he tried. And so, they completely misinterpret it. All he can show them is an image of, I think, Warren and Jean hugging. Yeah, and so Scott figures, oh, oh, so I really have screwed everything up. Well, you know, Warren deserves Jean, she deserves to have somebody who will treat her right, and he's being all martyry, and it's very sad. But he doesn't have much time for that, because a group of Morlocks attacks Beast and Iceman while they're trying to get Leech and Caliban to safety. Scott and Jean are able to find them and rescue them, 
It turns out that these Morlocks are actually tunnelers. They're a rival band of Morlocks led by Berserker and Mask. Yeah, Mask we've seen before. He's always been a total jerk. He was kind of Callisto's left-hand man when Callisto was leading the Morlocks. And yeah, they reluctantly agree to go with the X-Terminators, because of course X-Factor is in that guise right now, to safety. The tunnelers, however, decide they're not going to stick around. No sooner have they gotten to X-Factor headquarters than they sneak back out, head to the docks, and are immediately jumped by a gang of muggers. And it turns into this big, bloody fight. I mean, we see Hornblower, one of the tunnelers, get killed immediately. A couple of this gang gets killed, and X-Factor sees it on the news and realizes, holy crap, these are the people we brought up. This is kind of our fault. Specifically, Cyclops realizes, this is kind of my fault. At the same time... Apocalypse is continuing to recruit horsemen. This time he recruits a wounded soldier named Abraham Lincoln Kiros from an iron lung who's going to make him into war, his second horseman. Now, I love the thematic uh, significance here. I mean, we have, you know, a warrior who cannot fight, who becomes the incarnation of war. And we have, you know, this woman whose power is the concept of plagues itself, but who has been sort of shunned by society because of it, who becomes the incarnation of pestilence. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Apocalypse, in recruiting the horsemen, doesn't go after the most powerful people. He goes specifically after survivors. Exactly, which, you know, given his only the strong must survive philosophy is kind of perfect. He's slowly starting to figure out what a theme is, and he's going with it. And he's looking really good as he does it. We've talked before about how Apocalypse's character design is really distinctive, and how well it works depends very, 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 very much on who's drawing it. And Walter Simons, for me, draws the definitive Apocalypse. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. But as Apocalypse does what Apocalypse does, stuff is continuing to escalate. The tunnelers uh, are now in a standoff with the police as X-Factor rushes toward them. A lot of the gang have been killed. The cops are getting more and more jumpy, you know, even as two of them have this debate about whether mutants are inherently violent and bad or not. And just as Scott and Jean try to intervene, a cop gets nervous and fires. He kills Scaleface, one of the tunnelers, who's this teenage girl who was actually pushing the tunnelers to stop making the violence worse. And Cyclops is forced to kill Berserker, the leader of the tunnelers. Basically, everything goes as wrong as it possibly can, leaving only a couple of cops surviving and a very severely injured mask, who, of course, will go on to do terrible, terrible things to a great many people. And give everyone tentacles. Uh, and give everyone tentacles, yeah. So it's a real down ending to the whole mutant massacre. Except for one thing, because meanwhile in a loft near Times Square, there is a young, possibly recognizable woman who has been working with an all-girl gang of thieves under the Vanisher. And she is quitting her job somewhat explosively. Yeah, that is Boom Boom, who we uh, last and first saw in Secret Wars 2, who basically says, screw you, Vanisher, if you try to come after me again, I am calling X-Factor on you, I will see you never. Yes! Welcome to the regular X-Cast, Boom Boom. We know you'll survive the experience because you are the best! But we can't actually end it on a high note, and so what we actually get as the final note of the issue is a cut back to the hospital, where we discover that Angel's wings are going to have to be amputated. And that's the end of the Mutant Massacre, but yeah. not the end of its impact. Not by a long shot. So, uh, this, this crossover, it's a really good story. It is oppressively dark and depressing. God, it is. And, you know, I think it kind of sets the tone for X-Men crossovers. They are generally not happy things. They're not. But it does really put a lot of pieces in place for some really fascinating story developments. We have a large portion of the X-Men who are not going to be able to be on the team for the time being. We have Angel about to lose his wings. Yeah, this is setting up, let's see, it's setting up Excalibur, it's setting up Inferno, it's effectively setting up some of the pieces for Fall of the Mutants, and honestly, some that are going to go as far out as Extinction Agenda. 
or even the Dark Angel Saga by Rick Remender and Uncanny X-Force. Yeah, that is a really good point. Yeah, this is a huge, huge turning point for both teams, for both titles, and for the line as a whole, both structurally and narratively. And I think there's this tendency to think of big events as the issues that are significant in X-Books. And, you know, in this case, that's accurate. I don't think it always is. I think people should really pay more attention to the issues to come in between. But the Mutant Massacre's importance cannot be overstated. It's worth noting, I think, that this is a crossover whose nature as a crossover came out of the story, where the editors and writers looked at what they were doing and said, no, this would make more sense if we spread it across multiple books, not saying, okay, we need to spread something across multiple books, come up with a story. And that, I think, is a hallmark of a good crossover. It's one that has a reason to be what it is, to be shaped the way it is. Absolutely. And so that's it for the Mutant Massacre. In the meantime, you've got questions. Halcyon Glaze asks on Tumblr, If you two had to be servants of Apocalypse, which horsemen or horsewomen would you want to be? I would like to be the horseman of retcons. Oh god, that's terrifying. Right? I think I would be the horseman of enthusiasm. So like I'd fly around on my robot horse and I'd make everyone super psyched about everything. But of course I'd be working for Apocalypse, so I'd have to be a bad guy, so it'd have to be kind of doomy. And so I guess they would have to get so psyched that they'd kind of get out of control with their passions and civilization would fall apart or something. I like that. Okay, so Exit421 asks on Tumblr, which X-Men would be most worthy to wield Mjolnir? Which X-Men would try the longest to lift it? So I think that Storm would probably be the most worthy to lift it. I mean, her nobility and strength of will are kind of unparalleled in the X-Men, and there's even sort of a precedent with her kind of becoming a Thunder God in the Asgardian Wars. Now, there is a what-if issue where Rogue actually does lift Mjolnir, but I don't really buy that. As far as which X-Men would try the longest to lift it, I think in the era where we are, at least, the answer is unequivocally Sunspot, and he would do it while wearing a Magnum P.I. shirt. Oh, yeah. And I like to think that he would, you know, keep trying and keep trying and keep failing and keep failing, and would then go on this, like, big, long, personal journey of self-enlightenment and then come back and still not be able to lift it, but at least be a better person. So this podcast is ad-free, and it is entirely listener-supported, and some of that support, some of the tiers on Patreon, come with on-air thanks from a variety of fictional entities. So yes, let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. You have stared into the abyss, Abraham Reisman, and seen the man you might have been, a twisted parody of genius ungoverned by morals. You tell yourself your comforting fairy tales, that Mark J. Cogan Esquire is a different man from a different world. All the while knowing, deep in your heart, that the line between you is even thinner than the mirror's edge. And now I will turn it over to the one and only Mr. Sinister. For so many years have I waited in the shadows, and there still I shall wait. For now, my marauders, Harpoon, Arclight, David McPherson, Diane Eady, and the rest shall tidy up this subterranean problem of which I have become informed. If my plans are to succeed, and oh, they shall, then there is no room for heavily retconned inconveniences like the Morlocks. Apocalypse, your days grow short. Okay, on that note, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much more. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free. It's made possible, of course, by our wonderful Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be back on a slightly lighter note, checking back in with the New Mutants. As they face off against Magus, check out not one but two alternate dark futures. And reunite with Charles Xavier. Charles Xavier.